When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, welcome yet again to the Jim Brockmeyer podcast. I'm your host, former Major League Baseball announcer, and the man who had to physically restrain Skip Bayless from punching the movie screen during Space Jam 2. I probably shouldn't have held him back. I am Jim Brockmeyer. I'm joined yet again by my co-host and producer, Sheena Dodd. How's it going? It's going all right, Brockmeyer. How about you? I'm good. Cleveland finally has a new team name. Did you see that? I did. The Cleveland Guardians, right? Guardians, yes. Guarding the proud legacy of not winning a World Series since 1948. You know, I'm surprised they got Tom Hanks to do the announcement. Well, you know, actually, they asked me to do it first. Did you know that? Really? I'm not kidding. And I wrote a poem for the name change. They didn't like the direction I took it. So they asked that, uh, what's his name? Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. They asked him instead. I see. So, uh, so, so Tom Hanks right. was, was their second choice after you. That's correct. They didn't like what I did with it. What direction did you uh, take it? Well, I can read the poem to you, right, so, but you got to imagine all the same fancy production that that, uh, what's, what's his name again? Uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks got, right. The dramatic music and the big sweeping shots of the skyline and Lake Erie and fire for some reason, no good reason. All that stuff, all right. <clears throat> so imagine all that. Here we go. There once was a team from Cleveland that's been losing so long you wouldn't believe it. Their mascot was racist. They said, okay, fine, we'll change it. Now it's the Guardians who'll be losing next season. That's, uh, that's, that's it? That was it. Brockmeyer, that was, uh, that was terrible. Like, I can, I can see why they spent extra money to get Tom Hanks. You know, whatever, Sheena. Once again, very jealous of me. And uh, I'm just practicing for one of truly cheap team requires my filthy poetry skills. Like when they make the announcement uh, video about the A's moving to Las Vegas. Got a line for that one already. <clears throat> Who needs the East Bay when you got strip club buffets and yada da dingle de doody? Dim. Well, it's, uh, it's a real, sounds like a real winner. Very jealous. There. Very bitter, very jealous. I should know better than to run anything by you. All right, enough of me uh, showing off and you being cranky. Let's get to the show. Boy, we are extremely lucky to have the guest we have today. He's the host of Late Night with Seth Meyers. That's weeknights on NBC, and it streams on Peacock. So do I, but that's another story. It's Seth Meyers, ladies and gentlemen. Seth, thank you so much for taking time out to join us here. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Jim. You, too, as always. You're a very busy man. Boy, I, 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 if I can jump right in, it must be exhausting interviewing celebrities every day and having to feign interest in whatever inane movie or TV show they're doing. So I appreciate your using your free time to feign interest in this podcast so thank you and thank you in turn for feigning interest in me jim i really i can't thank you enough 
I am doing that, by the way, because I really could not care less. But onward we go. I I tell you this, though, honestly, I could not do what you do. Interviewing people on this podcast is one of the hardest things I have ever done in my life. I'm not kidding about that at all. I think anytime I'm forced to listen to a a voice other than my own for longer than a few moments, I end up this like this like catatonic state of not caring about anything. You know, it's actually a form of energy preservation that I learned from uh, Charles Barkley. You know that whenever he's not talking, his heart stops. That's true. His Apple Watch declares him dead uh, seven times a day. Is that why he often um, answers questions that weren't asked? I think it might be. He just goes away and just comes back talking about whatever he feels like. So now I've heard you referred to as late nights Mr. Nice Guy. And I, mm. I, I won't deny, boy, you do seem like a very nice man. But if there's one thing I have learned in recent years, it's that most celebrities described that way have a secret heart of darkness. Now, is that the case for you? Like when the cameras turn off, do you make your writing staff like fist fight each other for your own amusement or something? Is it like gladiatorial over there? What, what, what's it like? You know, we are, we do try to be very nice to the people we work with. I will say right now, we couldn't even make our writers fight if we wanted to because they're all on Zoom. And maybe this makes me a slightly less nice guy. I don't hate having them out of the building, Jim. I'm going to be honest. I love them deeply. I love reading what they write. It hasn't been the worst thing in the world that they can't knock on my door. I see. So you're you're sick of your writers and uh, and enjoy the fruits of their labor, but you don't necessarily need them hanging around. That's not particularly nice. Yeah, I think you've summed it up well, yeah. Too bad about the Zoom thing. I think you should make them writers fight because they they tend to get a big ego, you know? Writers, they think they're the highfalutin artists. They believe whatever job they have is below them. You know, you got to make them fight every once in a while. Remind them of why they got into comedy in the first place. It's because their inherent physical weakness and nerdiness. Well, Jim, you've met some comedy writers. My question you is because I feel like if a comedy writer fought anyone from a different profession it would be a very quick fight obviously but when two comedy writers fight is it a quick fight or is it a fight that would go on in perpetuity without an ending because no comedy writer could actually win a fight. You're right. It would turn like into this battle of insults, uh, like quips, like Cyrano before the sword fights, if you never get to the sword fight. Two Cyranos. <laughs> exactly. You were at SNL, where I imagine you saw some of that going. SNL, that's what the kids refer to as Saturday Night Live. See, now, Lorne Michaels, he seems like the type of guy who would just throw a knife into the writer's room and say, okay, one of you gets to keep your job, go. Did something like that ever happen? It's a bit like that except Lauren has a staff of professional knife throwers. Lauren would never, never deign to throw his own knife. Lauren would come into the room with his knife guy. The knife guy would throw the knife and then uh, Lauren would excuse the knife guy and then Lauren would act as though he had thrown the knife. And we, out of, you know, sort of a sense of job preservation, would all act as though Lauren had thrown the knife as well. The thing is, I think Lauren would would love the idea of making us fight, but he is, uh, his, the Canadian in him is the dominant gene. And so there's a, at, at the core, there's sort of a passive-aggressive politeness. So he has a knife guy, doesn't do his own dirty work. No, no, very, like, beautiful, the, maybe the, some of the most beautiful hands I've ever seen are on Lorne Michaels. Just not, I, I don't, I can't remember the last instrument of any kind he's picked up. Physical labor has never, uh, no. <laughs> never, come, never come across his desk. No. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Mr. Nice Guy. Who's the most evil late night host? I mean, I, I mean, like, wait, not not who hosted SNL. I mean, of all you hosts, which one do you look at? You know, of all the late night hosts, and go, boy, this guy would 
cut my throat if we ended up alone in the bathroom at the Emmys. Like, which one do you actually fear? Well, anyone who knows me personally knows that I have an incredibly strong, virulent, almost, uh, xenophobic streak. And so, for me, <laughs> it's the British guys. It's Corden. It's Oliver. Obviously, Trevor Noah's not from here. These are gentlemen who are undeniably talented and present as nice, but will I ever trust them? No, sir. That's amazing you said that. You must be kind of psychic, because I figured you are going to deflect that, and then I was going to go, oh, okay, well, look, if it's James Corden, blink twice, and if it's John Oliver, give me a 30-minute diatribe about the FDA's institutional mismanagement of the medical device approval process, but you came right out and told us it's the British guys, so at least we were sort of in sync. It's the British guys, and to a slightly lesser degree, the South African guy. Exactly. Well, yeah, they're, they are slightly less uh, intimidating. Uh, so I guess I assume you all know each other. Yeah. But you, so you do. Is there like a G7 summit where all like late night hosts meet every year and bargain over who gets what celebrities? Like, all right, you get to play Truth or Dare with Tom Cruise, but I get to play Cornhole with BTS. Does that happen? That, I, I will only say that as a 1230 show, what you get is the last pick in the fantasy guest draft. And it, this isn't one of those snake drafts where you sort of pick 12 and then 13 and it comes back around. You just pick last overall. You're 12th every time. Yes. Yeah, that probably explains why that Hank Azaria is on your show so often. Multiple times. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense all of a sudden to me. Given what you just said, especially, I feel there's a lot of similarities between baseball announcers, such as myself, and late night hosts like yourself. Our jobs are longstanding institutions of American entertainment. We're all overwhelmingly white males, and we're both inundated with doomsayers declaring that Gen Z considers us increasingly irrelevant. So my question to you is this. Are you, like many baseball announcers, frightened of the future? Well, I think uh, what keeps me warm at night is remembering that we're all going to be nothing in the future. <laughs> Especially lately. And it seems like the future just keeps coming faster and faster for people. So, um, you know, I will just keep plugging along. And as someone who still enjoys listening to a baseball game on the radio, maybe I am just of that generation and I have to accept that I am living more in the past uh, than the present. Yeah, but you're right on all, all counts there. You know, yes, even li liking to listen to, to baseball games does make you part of that uh, soon-to-be-extinct past. And, and you're so right that the future really is now. It's just more and more frightening. And it's certainly very scary to baseball announcers. I don't know if you know this, but whenever John Sterling, the Yankee announcer John Sterling, whenever he hears a ticking clock, he just shits his pants. <laughs> it, it's, as, it's absolutely true. It's as if Captain Hook had IBS. That's how he reacts. They have to have he 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 announces games in diapers. Wow. And not me though. So I got to say I'm excited for the future. If baseball lost all its fans and my profession disappeared, I, I couldn't be more happy that it happened after the invention of uh, prescription opioids and VR pornography. Yeah. I, I couldn't ask for a better time in history for my job to become obsolete. I just can't wait. It will make retirement a softer landing for you. Those two things. It already has. Brockmeyer, this is a true story. I I was at a baseball game once, and they asked me if I wanted to go up into the booth. So I got to be in the radio booth, which was thrilling. This was a Pirates game. They said, you call the next play. And now I've been listening to baseball. I've been watching baseball. I know everything about baseball. And this is, I just want to tip my cap to what you do. Fly ball to left field, just a lazy fly ball. And I swear to God, the first thing I think is, I don't know if that's left or right field. Totally froze in the moment. Didn't, lost all the words. 
full panic. And so I just want you to know, when I listen to you, what you and your colleagues do, you guys make it sound a lot easier than it is. Yeah, they set you up there, I think. So I think that because we all know very well, it is very difficult. It doesn't matter what you do for a living to jump in there, even if you're one of these. Uh, Sheena, Sheena knows this stuff. What are, what are like improvisational uh, rappers? One of them guys. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the freestylers. The, the freestyle gentlemen. Exactly. Even those guys know. Those guys just do anything off that they can sing right away and, and improvise it. If they had to call a baseball game, they'd be silent for the first thirty seconds and turn into the uh, the boom. Goes the dynamite kid. Everybody gets turned into the boom. Goes the dynamite kid. <laughs> yeah, I think they uh, they knew that uh, that you were gonna they were, you were gonna fail at that. Well, they certainly they were right on the money. Yeah, even I have after doing it for you. I'm one of the few professionals who still suffers from that every once in a while. All of a sudden, I'll forget right field and left field. To be fair, though, Jim, that's mostly because you're you're getting drunk or. Yeah, but as you know, I get better. It's harder for me in the early innings when I'm not quite as wasted as I should be. I've always thought when I listen to you, I feel like the early innings are, it's like watching a painter just start on the canvas. It's still mostly white space, and you don't really see the colors in the trees uh, until about the fourth or fifth inning. If by white space you mean rationality and sobriety, and by color you mean drunken reactivity to whatever I'm looking at. But the truth is, Baseball announcers make what they do look very, very easy, but it is not. And uh, they're all wonderful professionals and really incredible experts, except for Joe Buck. He's an idiot who should be ignored and, and is annoying. And it's just held on for so long. It's just, I mean, what a case. I mean, a Supreme Court case of nepotism. Exactly. Yeah. If it weren't for daddy, weren't for daddy Jack Buck, <laughs> he'd be what he is, which is a male prostitute. Now, um, I feel like baseball announcers and late night hosts also have that common experience of having our day-to-day -day job, day in and day out. We have to do it, and we know it's not going to be entertaining very often. Like when I'm calling a blowout lopsided game, or when you're interviewing just a real dud of a celebrity. Who's the worst person you've had to talk to? And is it obviously, is it just, is it Meghan McCain? Can we just say that it's Meghan McCain? I will not say that, but I will say politicians. And I'm actually going to make it specific to elected politicians. This is a nonpartisan criticism. They are the worst guests to talk to while they're in elected office because they're just so boring. But there's got to be one worse one. Can you just tell me what their name rhymes with? Can you give it up, Mr. Nice Guy? I know there's one in your mind. I can see it. I can see in your eyes there's one shining example in your mind. Uh, well, all right. I can tell you that both Lindsey Graham and Chuck Schumer showed up with the worst preloaded dad jokes you could possibly imagine. Jokes they were going to tell come hell or high water whether I teed it up or not. Do you remember any specific dad joke they unleashed? I don't. I think I tried very hard to, um, I'll tell you this, when they said it, it became very clear to me it wasn't the first time. Yeah, these were, these were go-tos. That's like, I think a Hillary Clinton with that boy, with, with the mom joke, like the trumped up trickle down. Remember that one? Trumped up trickle down. The one I'll never forget is Pokemon go to the polls. Do you remember that one? Pokemon Go was spiking as a phenomenon. And Hillary Clinton said in the run-up to the election, I need you all to Pokemon Go to the polls. 
And it was, it was rough. Yeah, she also, like, she gets her whole body into it, like, when she's making a joke that she thinks is good. She kind of, like, turns to the side and sort of bobs her head, and it's like, what are you doing? It's as if something internally said, initiate joke protocol. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody can be a ball of pure charisma, like, uh, off the top of my head, for the, like that Hank Azaria, for exactly. example. Exactly, oh my God. Yeah. That third-rate guest that you're always able to get because you get last pick. <laughs> last minute. <laughs> yeah. I, now, I imagine that doing your show for the last year during COVID must have been particularly weird. I mean, first you did it over Zoom. Now you're back in the studio, but you still don't have a live audience. No. How's that been for you, all that weird back and forth? It's a weird thing. I think it's coming soon. I think in the fall, should the Delta variant not overtake America and the world, we'll have audiences back in the fall. But I got to be honest, Brock Meyer... I, you know, much like you, I kind of like living in the vacuum of just talking, knowing that people are listening. It's not like I don't like an audience. I know there's an audience watching at home. That's different from Brock Meyer. That's true. <laughs> Easy there, Sheena. It's kind of been creatively exhilarating to do the show for 12 crew members. See, I I, I would feel liberated. I, I, I feel you on this. Also, because the mix of people that you get in your live audience on a daily basis must be kind of bizarre. You get like diehard fans of your show mixed with like weird German tourists who wandered into 30 Rock looking for a toilet. And you need to make them laugh as a collective unit. That sounds impossible to me. It is impossible. And the other thing is you can tell yourself, well, this is a melange of people and this is not indicative of my audience at home but as a performer it is impossible not to take their reaction as god's word well yeah yeah exactly i mean you're you're a comedian you 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 want to hear laughs if you don't get them you don't it's hard to you know do the math of well they're germans looking for a toilet <laughs> you just feel like you're unfunny see that's why being a baseball announcer is better than being a late night host seth because i never i don't ever have audience feedback i just start talking about whatever i want i rattle off what i had for dinner that night or i tell a graphic story about getting a skin tag removed and as long as i give the count afterwards nobody says anything to me so you you have to actually you have to tell jokes they have to land that's too much work for me yeah people it's funny people keep saying do you miss hearing laughs and my answer is it's so great not having to worry about not hearing laughs yeah i understand that that's my job exactly <laughs> see but now that i'm thinking about it performing comedy for weird europeans like you tend to do probably is not that strange for you because didn't you do comedy in amsterdam i did you must have had some peculiar experiences doing that i love the dutch Spent two years in Amsterdam. Lovely people. Yeah, the orange, the the the, the, the speed skating and the tight orange uh, speed skating suits, the whole thing. I think only only a sportsman like yourself, Hank, would immediately start talking about speed skating <laughs> when yeah, I mentioned the Netherlands. I'm Jim, but that's all right. You, yeah, Hank's a guy you can get very easily on your show. Do you need him tonight? I can... Let me just say this about <laughs> Hank. It's true, because I think a lot of guests have egos, and you can't call him the night before and say, can you be here tomorrow? But... I mean, Hank, he answers on the first ring. <laughs> yeah, himself. No assistant, nothing. I forgot the night before, 20 minutes before. But, you know, that's Hank, a man of a, a thousand voices, I don't need to tell you. He will pretend to be his assistant. <laughs> that's true, he will. <laughs> hi, hi, two pictures. This is Tommy speaking. Can I help you? Oh, hi. Yeah, we're wondering, um, is Hank around? Oh, let's just check. Hold on a second. Hold on. He's, uh, he was, uh, I know he was busy earlier with very important meetings. Hold on a second. <laughs> Mr. Zaria, are you, are you in for Seth Meyer? Oh, yeah, hold on a second. Oh, hey, hey, Seth, it's Hank. How are you? Oh, God, I'm so glad we got you, Hank. Uh, your assistant made it sound like you were just so busy. No, I, I was. I was, I was, I was 
had an apple. Look, I'm just going to cut you off. Can you be here in five minutes? Of course. You know I can. <laughs> I thank you, Mr. Rosario. But that, that happens sometimes. Hank Azaria comes in and takes over my, my podcast, which is annoying to everybody, especially me. Anyway, Seth, you were saying, tell me about Amsterdam, which I want to hear about. The most interesting thing about doing comedy for the Dutch is the Dutch are a brutally honest people. They do not have much time to tell you anything that they hold insincere. And so we would do comedy for a Dutch audience. And then after the show, you would see, sometimes in the bar, in the theater after the show, you would see one of the people who had been in the audience. And I remember once somebody said to me, a gentleman said, uh, yes, uh, I was at the show. Can I buy you a drink? And I said, yeah, of course. Did you enjoy it? And he said, no, I did not. And <laughs> why, would you, why would you want to buy me a drink if you didn't enjoy the show? And he's like, well, I don't think you're funny, but you might be very nice. Again, the nice thing. He sensed your niceness. He sensed the kindness, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful place to be. I feel like, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, I do feel like this was the late 90s. Uh, I was in Amsterdam, and I do feel like uh, a few times in the red light district, I maybe saw a younger Jim Brockmeyer. Uh, in the off season, well, you may have, but you know, see, everybody assumes I love Amsterdam for that reason—the drugs and the prostitutes. But I actually don't. I, I think it's because it's it's too on brand for me there. You know, every time I got in high there, I just feel like a hack. You know, like how Jimmy Buffett must feel when he walks into a Tommy Bahama or something. It, it's like too much me there. Yeah. If I if I'm in Europe, I want to get high in a place that nobody sees coming. Nobody like the Vatican. I want to drop some molly and just uh, start rubbing my nipples to the sound of church bells. Well, that's because it's always a, a little bit about the thrill of the chase for you as well, right? Like, when you score legally, is it even scoring? <laughs> no, you're right. It doesn't feel. And also, like, I, when I rub my nipples at this point, it's got to be on something sacrilegious and difficult to get at. You know, if it's too easy, <laughs> I don't even feel it. Now, uh, let's, let's, get off, let's get off this topic and switch to New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Because that's where you're from, is that right? That's right. Doesn't that make you a Red Sox fan? Weren't you a Red Sox fan for much of your life? Yes, a huge Red Sox fan. Because you told me just before we went on the air here, if that's what you even call this these days, that you're actually a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. How did that happen? Well, my dad's from Pittsburgh, so I grew up a big Steelers fan. But then we, grew, we moved to New Hampshire, and I became a big Red Sox fan. But here's what happened, Jim. Red Sox winning the World Series in 2004 are absolutely the pinnacle of my life as a sports fan. Greatest thing. Sure. I felt like the way Pinocchio felt when he became a real boy. And then, you know, the Red Sox kept winning World Series. And each one felt a little bit less special. And like a drug addict chasing that high, I thought, what will feel as exciting? And the Pirates were so bad. They've been so bad for so long. They, they, you know, they had a moment a few years ago. But I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to jump on board because they can't call you a bandwagon fan when you, when you start rooting for the worst team in baseball. And that's what I'm doing. I'm chasing that high with the Pirates. I get it. So you're sort of addicted to the whole underdog uh, rags to riches thing. Absolutely. Yeah, you see, it makes sense because you being a Red Sox fan, I'm not surprised you, like, you know, opted out because you're not that annoying. You know what I mean? And Red Sox fans are just wildly annoying people as a rule. It doesn't make me worried about, I, you know, it, did, did it take a, when you were following the Red Sox, I worried about you because it takes a lot of energy to suppress that obnoxiousness. You know, only person I've ever seen do it successfully for a long period of time is Stephen King. And, you know, he funneled that darkness into evil literature. Did you have some outlet when you were a Red Sox fan, you know, just to counteract the douchebaggery? 
of your existence? Well, I think when it was more that moment, you're sort of a, everybody felt a little bad for you because they'd known what you'd gone through as a Red Sox fan. And so I think that the rest of the world forgave the douchebaggery of Red Sox fans because they knew how much we'd suffered. And then when the second the Red Sox won it all and none of us stopped being douchebags, the rest of the world realized, oh, it had nothing to do with that. I could not agree more with this premise. See, Red Sox fans didn't bother me until they won all these World Series. And you're right, the problem is that all of you spent your lives seeing yourselves as losers, you know, but now you guys regularly win, but they still can't escape the perception of themselves that they're losers. And that combination is just a recipe for obnoxiousness. <laughs> I mean, so you switch to the Pirates, so you can continue to feel like a loser. Yeah, I wanted to be a loser that was free of the scorn that is now delivered justifiably on those in the Boston sports community. See, Red Sox fans need to get over that. I would tell them the same thing I would tell Mark Zuckerberg. You're not a loser anymore, so just calm down and stop making society worse for everybody, okay? Get a hold of yourself. The greatest thing that ever happened to Red Sox fans was the New York Yankees because the New York Yankees made everybody think that the Red Sox were the victims. And then one day everybody woke up and it's like, you know what it is? It's like the space race between Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. At some point you realize, I'm not rooting for either of these people Yeah, to neither, win. neither should win, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Red Sox are doing quite well this year. They so are. you 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 decide you're if you wanted to continue to be a loser, you picked the right time to jump off that bandwagon this I year. Because they were horrible last year, and now they're out of nowhere doing so well. Um, are you surprised by that? I am surprised. To be honest, I feel like the karmic baseball gods should still be punishing the Red Sox for getting rid of Mookie Betts. Especially, you know, I have a. Uh, my kids are, are three and five, and it's about time to get them involved in rooting for baseball. And, and you know, as a parent, you, there's nothing more you could ask for than your team having a player like Mookie Betts, who is uh, both in name and performance and personality is exactly the kind of player your kids would immediately be drawn to. And so the fact that they've bounced back, I, I, I think, is, uh, is very impressive, but I feel as though they have not been punished enough uh, for that move. Yeah, Mookie is a fun name for kids for to kids, say. Come on. Although it is tough. As a Red Sox fan, I think the very fact that somebody walked into town with the name Mookie, you know, because I think every Red Sox fan just hears Mookie Wilson. And then a guy came in and's like, nope, I'm going to make you forget about that Mookie. And, uh, and he did. And he should still be there. And then they gave him away. Yeah. Referring, of course, to Mookie Wilson, the uh, 1986 Bill Buckner uh, slow roller went right through his legs off the bat of Mookie Wilson. That Hank Azaria, they, uh, since we're making this a lot about Hank Azaria, he's a big Met fan. He has two cats. He has two cats named Mookie and Wilson. How about that? I, I, I know a lot of Hank Azaria trivia. How many World Series have the Mets won since that one? Do you know off the top of your head? I know Hank would know. Do you know? Getting off that topic, because um, it's depressing and sad, and, and only uh, I, you're losing the nice guy image, at least as far as I'm concerned. Here's you know, my theory on why the Red Sox are doing uh, well this year, because uh, Affleck uh, and uh, J-Lo got back together. I think that somehow reconjured the magic of the 04 uh, season for Boston. But, but uh, in all seriousness, I give the credit to Alex Cora. 
great manager. And I don't find it at all mysterious to you that he gets suspended for cheating for a year and then he comes back and they're suddenly amazing again. That is purely coincidence, right? Even us suggesting that he might be cheating again is just silly, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think you go back to Fenway right now and if anything, the reason they're winning is the energy. You just hear it in the cheers from the fans and the banging of the trash kid lids against each other. Yeah, exactly. That's just, that's not, nobody's signaling anybody. That's just part of the, the celebration. How do we feel about the sticky stuff, Jim? Are you upset that the sticky stuff is, is out of baseball right now? To be honest with the sticky stuff, I mean, there's a lot of pitchers who obviously have just fallen off a cliff since they've been checking for it. It is kind of fun. New way to boo the ump. I love how we figured that out. Because now every time they check the guy, the ump just gets rain down upon with booze just <laughs> the poor guy's just doing his job as baseball has dictated he must and boy everybody gives him shit for it if i can offer one note of sympathy you know you hung with the red sox all those years such losers and then you finally broke through and uh, the greatest moment in red sox history will forever be accompanied by joe buck's voice i'm just i want to personally apologize to you for that I mean, it's such a pleasurable moment in your life associated with the most obnoxious voice in the world. I feel like you just traded one curse for another. Is that why you jumped off the Red Sox bandwagon? You just had enough, like, oh, this comes with Joe Buck, I'm out. Probably. I have watched those YouTube clips so many times, and I'm realizing now that you're saying it, that's what happened. Like, at some point, these moments of pure joy have been ruined by, let's be honest, just a thin, reedy voice of Joe Buck of a horrible little man. It's kind of like Clockwork Orange, where, you know, they the, the, the force him to watch the violence with the drops in the eyes and they make him sick. Do you have the urge to throw up now when you see uh, those replays in Joe Buck's voice? And Just talking about it now, I have that urge. Do you want to hear my, uh, my great story about what happened the night the Red Sox won the World Series? Uh, please, uh, absolutely. That's why we do podcasts, right? It's for the fun stories. I had uh, done a charity event for the Red Sox. I think it was in 2003. It was the year before they won the World Series. It was uh, some event where Ben Affleck and I both uh, hosted, and we met some of the players. And one of the players I met was Johnny Damon. And Johnny Damon gave, said, hey, give me your phone number. And so I had Johnny Damon's number in my phone. I never thought I'd have any reason to use it. But then I was in Chicago, used to live in Chicago. A bunch of my improv friends and I went to see a Red Sox-White Sox game. And then that night... I just decide to text after a few uh, a few beers, a few Brockmeyers. I text Johnny Damon, who immediately oh, texts back. Johnny Damon said, "Where are you?" And he and some other of the players came and met us at a bar in Chicago, and we continued uh, to have our Brockmeyers. And then at the end of the night, and this is uh, let's say July, Johnny Damon says, "Hey, write down your address. I want to invite you to my wedding." So I write wow. down my address on a cocktail napkin and I hand it to Johnny Damon. Now. I cannot tell you how little I thought I was ever going to receive mail from Johnny Damon. Who could ever see that coming? Mail from Johnny Damon. But anyway, continue. The night the Red Sox win the World Series, I'm watching it in New York City with all my Red Sox fans who live in town. We go to a bar. It is a teary night. I mean, I have feel I complete, feel completely released from what had been what had seemed like a life sentence of being a Red Sox fan. And then I go back to my apartment, key in the mail, open it up. Wedding invitation to Johnny Damon's wedding. Arrived the night that the Red Sox won the World Series. That is special. Did you go? He went to the Yankees almost immediately, right? 
He did. He did go to the Yankees. I think I think he was stayed for one more year, and then he went to the Yankees. But again, I I have no. I could, it was impossible for me to to be mad at any of the players who uh, were on the 2004 Red Sox. I was in Boston when they won, and we lit rooms on fire and ran down to Fenway. I'm not. I'm a Cubs fan, but it was it was probably one of the more magical sports nights of my life, just because of the energy. It was the only night that I didn't hate Red Sox fans. There was a, a Red Sox bar called the Riviera that some Red Sox fans were just, had just like climbed up on streetlights outside of it, and the NYPD guys were were leaning against their their cars not doing anything and there was a real air of them they were giving off a vibe of they don't know what to do this is the first one of these they've ever won right right yeah it's like watching a teenager try to have sex for the first time it's like yeah let them fumble around with this (laughs) give them a wide bird sheena if i can circle back for a moment you lit brooms on fire uh, did you catch frankenstein that night they swept they swept because remember the the battle was them and the yankees yeah but there's no call to light brooms on fire and run around like an idiot sheena boston i also thought you would just bring a broom and that would signify a sweep Seems like extra to set it on fire. Yeah, also, they probably, they went out within, you know, 20 seconds, I'm guessing. (laughs) Well, I mean, some did, and some went on to light greater fires. Oh, it's like the miracle of Hanukkah happened with your Red Sox boom that just kept burning? The Boston version of what Seth experienced in New York was much, much different. This would not be the first case of Boston fans not thinking it all the way through. Exactly. Yeah, it turned into a riot pretty quickly. I'll bet it did. Now, Seth, before you answer, I'm going to take a wager here. The question is, did you actually go to Johnny Damon's wedding? Now, I would bet you didn't because that's a a celebrity just wouldn't. Like, you get, oh, we've carried this far enough. I don't need to actually go to the wedding, but you're so nice. I don't know. Sheena, what do you say? Did Seth go to the wedding or not? I say he did not. What do you say? I think he did. He probably did. Seth, did you go to Johnny Damon's wedding or not? I 100% went to Johnny Damon's wedding. Of course he did. He's a nice guy. I mean, it was amazing. It was uh, New Year's Eve, two months after they won the World Series. And I got to hang out and talk with some, not all of that team. It was great. It was in Orlando. He was married in Orlando. And uh, it was a beautiful wedding in a four seasons, I want to say. My favorite person to talk to at that wedding uh, was Kevin Euclid, who is, uh, who is a lovely, lovely gentleman. Uh, funny guy, Euclid? Euclid was the funniest guy I talked to at that wedding, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a good man. Yeah, usually one ball player, my experience is one, one guy on a team is actually funny, and the rest are uh, wonderful athletes. I will say, I'm not going to name names, but here's the funny thing that Euclid said to me, which is uh, a different player. There was an open bar. And a different player walked by Euclid and I, and again, not going to name names, opened up his jacket, his tuxedo jacket, and had a bottle of Crown Royal and said, Euclid, I just stole this tonight in my hotel room. We're going to kill it. Just yes or no, Big Poppy? No. And he walked off, and then Euclid looked at me and said, uh, that guy who just stole that Crown Royal makes $8 million a year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna Google. <laughs> well, I'm gonna look. I'm not leaving any breadcrumbs. I'm changing every detail, so there's no. <laughs> it was not. I will say this: it was not a Red Sox because uh, Johnny Damon had a, had had a long career. The greatest night of my life, as far as hearing stories about baseball, is 
Nomar Garcia Parra used to have a charity called Nomar Bowl. And I got invited to Nomar Bowl once. And at the end of the night, I ended up at the bar with Big Poppy, Kevin Millar, and Ben Affleck. And I feel as though I have lived a fairly interesting life. And the best story that had ever happened to me would not have cracked the top 100 of the stories that those three guys were telling. Is that right? Can you share one uh, uh, now? Do you, can't do it? The next time Hank Azari is on the show, I will yeah. tell him one, and he will appreciate why I could not tell you, Jim. Ah, that Hank Azari always scoops me. <laughs> So they once sent me, this is true, to Super Bowl week to interview some players. And it was the year that the Patriots were playing, I believe it was the Seahawks. And uh, who was that terrific slot receiver? Wes Welker. Welker. That's, thank you, Sheena. Wes Welker. So I asked, I had a bunch of cheeky questions for these guys. And I said to a Wes Welker, uh, hey, Wes. And you're in a big crowd of reporters. You kind of call out questions. I said, hey, Wes, uh, Anybody ever get fresh in that scrum? You guys are digging around for the ball and a fumble. Ever anybody kind of just uh, grab where they shouldn't? And he kind of looked at me and uh, he paused and he, without breaking a smile or anything, he went, sometimes, yeah. And uh, I said, uh, you ever enjoy it? You ever kind of like it? And uh, without, again, without cracking, he went, depends on who's doing it. <laughs> very, very nice. He was a funny guy. He got benched. Did he get benched one year? Because he was making jokes in a press conference about the Rex Ryan foot fetish. Yeah, he was. Remember that? He kept inferring if he's like, well, we just want to we just want to put our best foot forward, you know, and get a <laughs> yeah. leg up. Yeah, it was pretty funny. His I mean, his his bit was funny. He kept doing a lot of dad joke puns about Rex Ryan and he got in a lot of trouble from Belichick. There was no way of knowing Bill Belichick didn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> That's true. That's true, son. That's been proven. He was given an MRI that could not find one. He does a charity about children who were born without senses of humor. It's Belichick's kids. Well, now, speaking of that's a great segue, because, see, one would expect that a, at least a former Red Sox fan who grew up in New Hampshire would uh, also be a Patriots fan. But you are not. You are a Steelers fan because your dad. Is that right? Yeah, my dad's from Pittsburgh, and it was just non-negotiable. We had to be Steelers fans. Yeah, I understand that. See, my, my dad passed on his passions to me as well, specifically alcoholism and, and drug abuse. But, you know, more importantly than liking the teams I like, I hope my children would hate the teams that I hated. And I, I would put a lot of effort into training them to do so. Like whenever I made them sit in a timeout, I'd make them look at a picture of Jerry Jones just to work up a negative association with the Cowboys. But uh, how do you feel about your Steelers uh, this season? You think uh, Roethlisberger, age 39, has... Another great season left in him? One last ride, yeah. It does seem like certainly the gunslingers in the movies tend to have one last ride in them. And yet I feel like there were a lot of gunslingers they didn't make movies about. <laughs> exactly right. We don't hear about them. Yeah, the gunslinger who, who uh, went down to the corral thinking they had one, one last uh, good draw on them. Nobody, nobody writes books about them. So I, but I will say, I go into most seasons fairly optimistic and yeah I was I know people say you're not supposed to draft a running back in the first round but I was very happy about uh, Najee Harris and I will have my hopes high so that they can be crashed upon the rocks well that's not really well I guess that is kind of a Steelers thing of late you guys always do well always have a good team when's the last time you guys have won it all about 12 13 years ago 2008 yeah 2008 and then we lost to the Packers in 2010 and then, you know, I think we've only won 
one or two playoff games in the last decade, which is for Steelers. You know, Steelers fans have irrationally high expectations. It has been a tough, a tough run of things. And to end last season losing to the Browns, I mean, that is not how you want things to go. Yeah, no, not a first Steelers fan, no. I mean, Roethlisberger, he has put in the effort. Uh, I was reading this thing last week that he spent the whole offseason so laser-focused on getting in shape that his diet is actually more strict than Tom Brady's. And do you believe that? I don't think anybody in or outside of football has a stricter diet than Tom Brady. I know. Well, besides that, I have trouble imagining Roethlisberger uttering the phrase gluten-free. Right. I mean, he looks like a walking, talking chicken pot pie to me. Yeah, I can't. You can't imagine him saying, "Waiter, are there nightshades in this salad?" <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem. He looks like a guy who gets himself pumped up to destroy his opponents by looking at the menu of a vegan restaurant just to get really <laughs> angry. But uh, well, I wish you luck with your Steelers. Thank you. And your uh, well, no, not your Red Sox. Your Pirates. Strangely enough, gee, if I'd known, I would have prepared a lot of Pirates jokes. But uh, instead, I just talked about the Red Sox. I will say, as Pirates fans, try not to give too much warning because it's uh, so easy to write the jokes. Well, so, all right, so you are a man, well, you used to be anyway, a man of two cities. I, I still am a man of two cities. I'm still, you know, I still love the Celtics, and I do still have a place in my heart for the Red All right, so good. That sets us up nicely for this. We always play this dumb little game at the end of uh, each podcast, which we try to tailor to our guest. And so you, you got some sports, Boston sports fandom in you and some Pittsburgh sports fandom. So I want to try to suss out which place your heart truly belongs to. So Sheena's going to read you some local news head lines that are either from Pittsburgh or from Boston. And I want you to see if you can tell me which city they are from. They're just typical events you might see on any random day in either of these cities. And you tell me Pittsburgh or Boston. All right, Sheena, hit us with the first one. Man stabbed with sword following landlord-tenant dispute. Boston. No, that was Pittsburgh, Seth. I'm so sorry. But I think you should have known that because, see, it's much easier to get a sword in Pittsburgh because of the steel industry. Oh, interesting. I thought I was thinking of a pirate sword and figured a, a, a seafaring city would be more sword friendly. But you're right. I should have thought of seal. No, yeah. You see, you can't throw a rock in Pittsburgh without hitting a sword. I know I've tried that. I've thrown a lot of rocks, <laughs> hit a lot of swords. All right. Now, uh, question two. Tourist takes video of seagull swallowing a whole rat. I would be very surprised if there was a seagull in Pittsburgh. That's Boston. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of an easy one. But did you know this? That, that That's actually the image on the city's flag. It's a seagull swallowing a whole rat perched on a Dunkin' Donuts. That's the Boston city flag. Did you know I that? I think in the seagull... Oh, no, the rat's wearing a tri-cornered hat. That's right. And his little eye patch. That's right. All right. Question three. Story three. Satan tries to get a date on subway system. Yeah, I like that one. Satan tries to get a date on the subway system. Not much of a subway system in Pittsburgh. I'm going to say it is Boston. Another really obvious one, yeah. Yeah, but also not just because there happens to be no subway system in Pittsburgh, but it's so expensive to live in Boston that Satan it was actually forced to take public transportation. He could not afford right. a car living in Boston. Right, uh, story number four, Sheena. Furries cancel annual convention due to COVID-19 concerns. That one's not so obvious. Well, I will say Pittsburgh, uh, of course, has the neighborhood. Squirrel Hill, I will say it was Pittsburgh. Very good reasoning. That's right. That's right. Do you know what you know what a furry is, of course? You know what a I furry do. is, right? Right. Subculture of people who dress up and role play as cartoonish anthropomorphic animals. Now it is not necessarily a sex thing, which was surprising to me because and they get angry, by the way. I know yeah. this. If you call it a sex thing. I did that one time and they role played by taking a shit on the hood of my car. That's how they responded. <laughs> uh <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know why they're drawn to Pittsburgh, though, to hold their annual convention there. Maybe it's, you know... They do, the annual convention. What an interesting thing. Yeah. Maybe it's Roethlisberger's natural hairiness. The beard. I think when you saw, when he grew out that beard during his uh, his recovery season from an injury, that would maybe be a beacon, a bat, a bat signal of sorts for the furry community. He looks kind of like a furry. He does. All right, final, final question, Seth. Then we'll get you out of here. I'm sure you're psyched to get back to your... You, he has been the nice... Hasn't he been the nicest gifts? Normally, by this time, our guests are saying really sarcastic things about how they can't believe this is all still going on. You're the only one who hasn't done that, so thank you for being so kind. All right, final, final question for Seth Myers. Cops urge anyone who hears a mysterious recording of a baby crying and a child calling out for help to keep your door shut and call 911. That's disturbing. No tip there, but I will say, here's, I'm gonna say Pittsburgh because I feel like the cops in Boston wouldn't tell you to stay inside. They'd tell you to go sort it out for yourself. So I'm going to say it happened in Pittsburgh. It's like we're psychic, or maybe you wrote some of these jokes, because that's exactly, it is Pittsburgh, and, and that's exactly right. You know it's Pittsburgh because people in Boston could not care less, and they, <laughs> they would not go to help a small child, so that warning would be entirely unnecessary. There you go. I don't know. It could also be that if it's Pittsburgh, you hear a child crying, maybe they saw a furry. All right, Seth, you've been very kind to spend this time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This was a delight. Keep up the wonderful work, and uh, whenever you're stuck, just call that Hank Azaria. I'm sure it'll be right over. Well, that's it for uh, this installment of the Jim Brockmeyer Podcast. Be back in two weeks for another episode. And don't Don't forget forget to follow, rate, and review. No, I I knew I was going to actually say it that time. No, Brockmeyer, you didn't know. No, I did. You ruined it. God, let me say it the next time. All right. Round up, run, and relate. Anyway, thanks to uh, Mike Ryan to Metalark Media, to Funny or Die. We'll see y'all next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.